welcome to the Fram Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. The following is a recording of a live conversation between the doctors Wes Avram, the director of the Park Center, and Jonathan Walton, the newly inaugurated president of Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. This conversation took place on the 3rd of December, 2023, at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. This conversation is part of the Park Center's ongoing dialogue on the future of the church and congregational ministry. Good morning. I guess it's still morning. While everyone's finishing up going through the line, I think... uh, Given that we have different places to go and things to do today, I want to just move right into our conversation. Uh, When we first uh, were in communication with President Walton's office, his um, very uh, uh, careful and um, the kind of executive assistant I think all of us would like to have, very much uh, protecting and taking care of Dr. Walton, she said to me, "Be be sure to not exhaust him on his day here at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church. So we're doing, I'm doing my best to uh, disobey her order. Uh, no, we, are, uh, we, we don't wish to exhaust you today, but we want to take full advantage of your, of your presence. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Can we thank Jonathan for being here? I hope that you have all had an opportunity to read a little bit more about him in the brief bio in the, um, in the bulletin uh, today about his educational background, his professional background uh, and what has brought him to uh, Princeton Seminary. We have several seminaries in the Presbyterian Church and, uh, and several additional seminaries serving the uh, denominations like ours throughout the country. Uh, each seminary has its strength and its qualities, and we share in, an, in a work with uh, all of our sister, uh, our sibling seminaries uh, around the country from various traditions. That said, even though I taught on the faculty of a different seminary than Princeton, I'm a little partial, as is are several of our uh, your pastors here, to this particular seminary. Not only have each of uh, your pastors graduated from Princeton Seminary, one of them has a Ph.D. from Princeton Seminary and taught there for a period of time, and we first met there. I first met Mike Hegeman when he was leading the Engel Institute for Preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary, and for some reason, they didn't have anybody else to invite that year to be a preacher than me. So I was there preaching and met Mike Hegeman, uh, and uh, here we are serving together uh, at, uh, at Pinnacle. And, and also, you should know that Brandon Heeneman, our Director of uh, Youth and Family Ministries, has a certificate in Youth and Theology from the Institute for Youth Ministry. At Princeton Seminary, we have two cohorts of members and non-members who have done the Certificate in Theology and Ministry online through the seminary. I think you all, many of you know that we have twice had the choir from the seminary here in residence for a week of their own educational programming, and then we added uh, some programmings related to the Valley here and the programs uh, and ministries here at Pinnacle. We have had uh, Eric Barreto and Ann Stewart from the seminary preaching here. Um, Jonathan's predecessor, Craig Barnes, has been in the pulpit and also 
taught doctor of ministry classes here. So in other words, I guess we are PTS West. That's it. That's uh, it. And we are grateful for all that that partnership means to the seminary. But in addition to, or excuse me, what that partnership means to us is what I meant to say. I'm not sure what it means to the seminary, but yeah. what that means to us. It means, it puts us into a wider conversation. Dr. Walton, I think you know, our members have read a little bit about your education and professional background. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you didn't know I was going to ask you this, about your, your, uh, your growing up, your personal background, and uh, perhaps even your family? Well, first of all, Wes, just thank you. Uh, thank you for allowing me this incredible opportunity to share with this just extraordinary, thoughtful community of faith here. I am quite aware of the relationship between Princeton Seminary and Pinnacle Presbyterian, so much, so much of what you mentioned. And in so many ways, this community of faith is a moral exemplar of faith-seeking understanding and the kind of robust partnerships that we want to have and love to have with communities of faith. We, so much of our, uh, what we learn in theological education, um, there's a saying among pastors, you know, this, um, uh, when we get into the ministry and we're serving, we say, I never learned that in seminary, right? I never, never got that in seminary. Well, we may have gotten it in seminary. We just didn't know what we were supposed to be paying attention to. Oh, that's true. Right? <laughs> or we didn't know what we needed to know, right, until we actually got involved in the community. And if Princeton Theological Seminary is going to continue to be a learning community for life, not just for pastors and ministers, but also for lay leaders and congregants, um, then it's these sorts of partnerships, like between Princeton Seminary and Pinnacle, that we want to continue to cultivate and develop. Because in so many ways, I may have kind of been joking about this being a Princeton Seminary West, but not really. Why? Because communities of faith like yours are adjuncts in the learning community and the learning experience. And so we're very grateful for you. I am a product of Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up between Atlanta and North Carolina. Both of my parents are from uh, North Carolina, and I was raised in, uh, in Atlanta, running up and down the road. Um, and I was part of and kind of shaped in uh, the press, progressive evangelical community. What do I mean by the progressive evangelical community, right? Baptist, progressive Baptist churches, um, uh, uh, the, my parents, my mother, my grandparents, uh, members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, uh, father, uh, member of progressive Baptist congregations. Um, and so it was between these African American Methodists and African American progressive Baptist churches that I lived my life. Um, and these are congregations that, uh, very much were a staple of my home life, but also a staple of my intellectual life. Right? Uh, that is to say, if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to be able to pay your rent, as I often mm -hmm. heard, if you want to be able to pay the rent that society demands of you, uh, then you have to serve. You have to serve. 
And that service is animated by our faith. Just as our education is animated by our faith. And so my precious grandfather, I heard it so many times over the course of my life. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a difference, read. (laughs) If you want to change the world, get your education. Because there is something that no one can take away from you. And it was in that tradition, particularly thinking of my grandfather, John Curtis Washington, born May 18th, 1924, into Jim Crow, North Carolina, that it was faith that spoke against the evidence of his society, the evidence of that you are a second-class citizen, the evidence of which you are not equal, the evidence of which you must remain in your place. But he held on to a faith commitment, and as so many in this tradition, of a faith commitment that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And if we're all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, then guess what? No one is superior to anyone else based upon region, based upon race, based upon ethnicity, based upon gender, even as we are always working to get these things right. But it's this ideal of being in the imago dei of this progressive evangelical tradition that largely shaped me. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that continued in my education. I attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, growing up in the 70s, growing up in the 80s, going to college in the 90s, still in the shadow and standing on the shoulders of these civil rights stalwarts, these American heroes. Again, people animated by their faith commitment to live it out in the public square. And it was the opportunity to attend Princeton Theological Seminary and be introduced to the Reformed tradition, which is very much consistent to this tradition that I was shaped in, in terms of faith-seeking understanding as it relates to that we are reformed and always reforming, that we are developing it as human beings. And most importantly, because of your faith commitments, you dare not check your brain at the door when you enter into the church house. And so that is, uh, continues to animate me as an educator. And, um, and so it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be back at Princeton Ser- Seminary, serving a community mm-hmm. that served me so well. You served there. You studied there. You served as um, Minister of Memorial Church and Plumber Professor of Christian Morals mm-hmm. at Harvard University. You've been Dean of the Divinity School at Wake Forest, graduate of Morehouse. You've seen higher education in a lot of different forms and in the forms that the wider culture celebrates and sets on a pinnacle. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? What what is yet to be known in circles of study and learning that um, is itching at the margins, at the door, wanting to be in the conversation? What do we still need to learn, both in institutions and in places like Fellowship halls of congregations. Mm-hmm. No, that's a... Which is not a question I told you I was going to ask. No, it's... It felt a, like I wanted to get right to it, no, so I'm sorry it's, about that. It's a, great, um, it's, it's a great question, and you're right. I've had the privilege of serving at 
what some would consider, you know, some of the most distinguished universities on the, on the planet. I still consider it an honor. But I also know that, and we're seeing this in our society, we're seeing a certain backlash. We're seeing a certain backlash to uh, cultures of, quote unquote, meritocracy. And by meritocracy, I'm not talking about just the simple, the belief or the ideal in its best form Mm -hmm. that all people have access, regardless of race, gender, income, right? And that is what was born out, particularly in the early 20th century and by the mid-20th century, by institutions like Harvard and the like, where once upon a time, it was just say, Harvard Blue Bloods or Princeton Blue Bloods, men who went down and they literally didn't apply. They signed up to attend school. And so meritocracy as an ideal, including SAT testing and other varying markers, became a way to disrupt this kind of hierarchy by heredity. By heredity. And it served a purpose. But we also know that meritocracy has become concretized over the second half of the 20th century. It's become concretized in such a way that the varying metrics of access have become increasingly unattainable to the vast majority in society. Where we have the data as it relates to household income and SAT scores. Mm -hmm. We have the data as it relates to income and access to elite prep schools. We have the data as it relates to admissions and the number of AP courses that one school. Insofar as that we know that it's the top 1% and even the top 0.5% that disproportionately represent the student bodies at our most elite institutions in American society. And so while some of the backlash in higher education in American society can be attributed to just the strand of anti-intellectualism that's always been at the current of American society. The great sage of Buffalo, Richard Hofstadter, wrote so eloquently about that. We know that that's part of it. But there's also legitimate criticism Mm -hmm. in terms of the inaccessibility of higher education. And that is something that we have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with accessibility. We have to wrestle with soaring prices. The higher education price index, which we call HEPI, often runs ahead of consumer price index. So therefore, it's becoming increasingly uh, expensive to maintain a campus. And those costs are passed on to to our students, to learners. And that's driving the uh, student loan debt crisis in American society. That is something that we have to wrestle with. And then finally, the, uh, the fact that we live in a knowledge-based economy, a knowledge-based economy insofar as the tools and technologies that make knowledge more accessible at our fingertips and not necessarily trapped behind the gilded gates of our elite institutions. That's causing people to raise question ab- questions about the return on investment in higher education. And so if we are intellectually honest as educators, 
we have to make sure that we're being true to our commitments. And so therefore, flexibility and accessibility. Trying to open up the doors of access, not just who can come into our gates, but also how we can get outside of our gates, Mm -hmm. like in our partnership with Pinnacle, to make sure that a Princeton Theological Seminary education is uh, accessible to whoever could benefit from it. Which is just the question I wanted to ask, if what you describe also impacts theological education. Absolutely. As we think not only about the training of professionals, but training of, if we believe, that we are all ministers when at baptism, then we're training baptismal ministry, right, in a way. And how does do those dynamics impact the work of education within the churches? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's our doubling down on the priesthood of all believers. It's doubling down on the fact that this work is not separated out for a monastic priestly elite. But no, theological education has something to offer for all who have answered God's call. And so that's why people will often hear me talk about not just flexibility and accessibility, but this capacious sense of God's call. People come through theological education, have come through Princeton Theological Seminary, are serving in all fields of human endeavor. And they're doing it, living out their faith in all of these fields, whether it's health care, whether it's law, whether it's education. Right? They're animated by their faith. And they want resources to be able to do so. So if we are only training people who have answered a particular kind of call to serve in particular roles, then we really aren't maximizing our incredible resources as an institution. I'm going to take that chance to to unashamedly put in a plug, which I wasn't anticipating doing, but one thing for you all to think about going forward, since I won't necessarily be in that conversation in coming years, is also what influence, impact what he is saying has on our commitment to campus ministry. One of the things that our denomination did, as did United Methodists and Lutherans and others of the kind of traditional Protestant mainline, so-called mainline churches, when budgets began to shrink at national levels and staff began to shrink, these denominations retreated from investment in college ministries. Presbyterians leading the way is that our commitment and our financial commitment to college ministries, where traditionally we have recruited and inspired professional clergy, where we have affirmed our values in the context of the major universities of the country, we have almost nearly abandoned the university. Not entirely, but significantly so. And one thing that congregations like Pinnacle can do is turn around and say, we are committed to the universities. Mm -hmm. ASU, Grand Canyon... Um, Scottsdale Community College, other schools around the area, Phoenix College, other areas where we can try to not only use resources from, but send passion, concern, and care back and inspire and include, uh, in whether it means supporting campus ministry centers or uh, supporting faculty and the like, being a witness to the universities as well as taking resources from, right? In, in part, to f- in order to inspire people to take advantage of places like Princeton Seminary when they're done, right? Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, I just want to go back to, to, to that point. 
we have something to offer, what people used to call, quote unquote, soft skills, right? We just call emotional intelligence. <laughs> and these are the sorts of things that we provide in theological education. When, when we talk about critical thinking, when we talk about the humanities, when we talk about in terms of creativity and moral imaginations and being able to think outside of boxes as it relates to ethical frameworks. This is our specialty. It's our bread and butter in theological education. And in the process, this makes better lawyers. It makes better doctors. It makes right uh, people who work in all fields. And so one example that I've been privileged to be a part of over the last few years, but in the last year in particular, particularly with a group called Interfaith America, um, led mm -hmm. by Ibu Patel, yeah. is this faith health convening. Because now that we have, it's hard to deny after the last four years for anybody to deny the importance of health equity. It's hard to deny uh, the social determinants of health. And if we're going to talk about public health, it's not just being reactive, but it's about being proactive. And studies have proven that the vast majority of people, when it comes to illness and disease, sickness and disease, they do not distinguish between the physical and the spiritual. Hmm. A study done by the American Cancer Institute, uh, done in New England of all places, showed that 75% of people do not distinguish between the spirit and the physical. It's known as the foxhole effect. Right. But as there are no atheists in foxholes, well, at the time of negative diagnosis, right, people begin to rely on their varying frameworks, spiritual frameworks, to make sense and to make meaning. And so they want this out of their pastors. They want this out of their health care workers. They want this kind of theological competency. Right. In the same way, we need to be able to supply and expand the role of chaplaincies within healthcare to tend to the very real sense of angst, anxiety, and despair that our healthcare workers face on a daily basis. And so that's just one example yeah. of thinking beyond the traditional role of pastor where theological education has so much to offer. So you see that theological education moving into those kinds of areas more effectively? I think that if we are really going to lean into our relevance, and, and again, we can sit around and lament about what we're not anymore, right? Or, 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 or we can lament, you know, say, for example, with the quote-unquote, the decline of the mainline church. Or we could actually see where there are real needs that people are asking for us to address. And so I say, uh, uh, for some of the things of the past, we can let go because we have so many incredible opportunities to embrace for our future. When uh, Ann Stewart and also when your predecessor in the presidency was here, Craig Barnes, they each spoke to us about the... Um, the audit that the seminary did on its historic relations to slavery and some of the responses the seminary has made to that. And in listening to them talk about that and then listening to other institutions talk about who have faced the same kinds of questions recently, 
I was struck by the language of repentance, um, reparation, and repair, and redemption. The kind of the deeper theological story in which the seminary had a language to put this self-examination in. Mm-hmm. That, however imperfect, mm-hmm. still allowed the seminary to take steps in ways that other institutions without that that defining story tended to trip over themselves a little more. Um, and am I right in saying that? I mean, what's I, and I know that's ongoing, but mm-hmm. um, but there is something about the the story we tell. You know, even in confessing our sins in worship, we already tell a story of forgiveness that allows us to be even more honest about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right, and 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 it has to be. We have to have a moral framework. Mm-hmm. And that moral framework has to be able to call mm-hmm. us into question, has to be self-critical, has to be grounded in epistemic humility, and it has to be prospective and not just retrospective. Right? So, therefore, remember I said I come from a tradition of progressive, progressive African Americans that as it relates to the question of race, as it re- relates to the question of the denunciation of slavery, the denunciation of Jim Crow, right? All people are created equal. Well, all of my forebears, all of my dear brothers, weren't always so progressive when it came to women. They weren't all as progressive when it came to economic inequality and economic injustice, right? And so it's the same moral framework that you're able to begin to apply it to oneself in the immediate context, right? Not just to celebrate or valorize, but we're actually able to see that injustice is a many-headed hydra. You cut off one head, it grows back to in the other places. And so therefore, we must always be prospective. And so that's what I meant when I was talking about Christian nationalism. Right. We're always thinking about the varying implications of how it can take different forms. And so when we think about the slavery audit, it's something that I absolutely celebrate. I celebrate it and the same kind of epistemic humility that it takes for us to repent for our past wrongs is the same kind of epistemic humility we have to have in the contemporary moment to look around and think, where are we falling short right now? Where about our commitments to the environment, about our commitments to space and global missions as it relates to our uh, commitments of economic inequality? These are the other areas that we have to have that same level of self-critique so that we can begin to push forward in the future and not just break our arm patting ourselves Mm -hmm. on the back about our apologies for yesterday. Yes, thank you. And... um, Thank you for your time today. Uh, Listen, thank you for all that y'all are doing as a congregation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.bramparkcenter.org.